According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 12 and following. I think uh, we've looked at most of the details out of 12 and 13, and we'll be talking about some aspects of trusting in uh, verse 14, which is not the trusting that you think it is, and so we'll have to break that down for you as well. The problem when you uh, are reading an English text is you just assume that you know what trusting is or what believing is or things of that nature, and then you read the Greek text behind it and go, oh, wait a minute, that's not what I thought it was. And so you've got to understand that uh, some translations are better than others, and uh, this is one we want to work on. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions and taking advantage of this time to confess anything that needs to be confessed. I uh, realize a lot of people don't intentionally go to church carnal. Uh, if you're carnal, you skip church. But you did drive in Austin traffic and probably on 183 or one of those other highways. Something could have happened. And so uh, who knows? Carnality can happen at any moment. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. You've got a First John 1 9 opportunity, and let's humble ourselves for teaching. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful that uh, none of this depends on us, <laughs> Father, our worthiness, our ability, because all of it is by your grace, Father. It's the worthiness of your Son, and it's the ability of your Holy Spirit to uh, open the eyes of our understanding, Father. We thank you for the privilege of studying to show ourselves approved. We thank you for the position we have in Christ, and we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to uh, to give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to understand. We thank you for Philippians, and we pray that we would not only understand it, but uh, come under uh, powerful conviction, Father, how to apply it personally and corporately. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're dealing with the second section here in the greater progress of the gospel, the section that... Uh, that we uh, identify with here in verses 12 through 18. We, the first section after the salutation was verses 3 through 11, which centered on he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We get to this middle section and we're focusing on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And we're learning how to rejoice in our circumstances and to recognize that we do have mastery over the circumstances and details of life, that our circumstances don't control us, that our happiness is not dependent upon the things that happen. And uh, all too often, the unbelievers and, and believers who should know better, uh, they allow the things that happen to determine whether they're happy or unhappy. And so they become total slaves of their circumstances and the things that happen. Well, that's not us. The things that happen, happen for God's purpose. And we learn to rejoice in any circumstance, rejoicing in the Lord, not the circumstance. And we learn that uh, when God produces His result, then in hindsight we can look back, thankfully, and say, thank you, Father. <laughs> Didn't know what you were doing with that, but now that we can see what it's accomplished, we can thank you for it. The third portion of the chapter we'll get to in verses 19 through 30 that centers on to live as Christ and to die as gain, which... Uh, is a great principle for each one of us day by day. So, um, so far in the outline then, we've covered point one, the occasion for writing, which is a personal testimony to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. His circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, contrary to what you might expect. It's a surprise. It's a surprise twist. And in fact, we, we might want to include the word rather in there somehow, uh, my circumstances have rather turned out or have turned out rather greater for the progress of the gospel. Something that communicates a contrast, that it's greater rather than lesser. And uh, as you might expect, lesser is turned out to be rather greater. And so in a surprise way, greater than would be expected. Had some subpoints under that, but moving past all that, point two, it's progress that caused Paul's imprisonment to become well-known, not the other way around. I think all too often we read the verse backwards, or we get the idea backwards. But when we see the progress of the gospel in verse 12, we then have hosta, we have so that, 
my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. And so we realize that it's, it's verse 12 that causes verse 13 to happen. That it's the progress in the gospel that causes the uh, chains to be well known, not the other way around. And uh, we don't want to confuse that. We don't want to confuse fame or popularity or celebrity and uh, get all excited if, if there's some celebrity for some reason and then think that that's then going to provide for further progress in the gospel. That's backwards. All right. Don't think that celebrity opens doors for fruitfulness. Uh, it should be the other way around. Fruitfulness may produce a certain amount of, uh, of I don't even want to call it celebrity, but a certain amount of well-known circumstances, a manifest circumstance. And the expression here, I'm glad we took the time on it, the expression for uh, the, the well-known terminology is the phoneros, is what is manifest, what is manifestly revealed. When God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. So if you're making progress in the gospel, if your ministry is thriving, if God is bearing fruit through you in such a way that Christ himself is being manifest, praise God, because that's what should be observed. And even an unbeliever can look at that and go, I don't get it, (laughs) right? I don't understand it. That is something beyond my capacity. Something different is happening there and I can't relate to it. And, and, and think about the different testimonies we have in Scripture in that regard. The centurion at the crucifixion of Christ and the, uh, the recognition with, with the earthquake and the, and the tombs open and all the things that were happening. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. And there's a testimony there. That testimony when God manifests Himself in and through us for His good pleasure. The praetorian is the last detail we looked at in verse 13, the praetorian guard. A praetorian could refer either to people or to a location. In most places in scripture it refers to a location, Uh, but here we believe it's better to take it as people because uh, places can't know things, but people can. And likewise, uh, it's not only the praetorian guard, but it's also to everyone else. And that last expression obviously is people, and uh, so it's better to take the praetorian here as people. And so to render it as the Praetorian Guard, the Praetorian soldiers, the uh, guard that would uh, be watching Paul in the Praetorium where he's being held. But it does not demand a Roman location, and that's kind of a a flawed thinking that's led to a lot of traditions and a lot of legends that Paul's prison epistles were written from Rome. And so so a lot of uh, interpretations as it applies to Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians have kind of gone with that assumption of a Roman imprisonment or a Roman origin, Roman source. And, uh, and as we uh, went through quite extensively in the introduction to this book, it's not necessary to have a Roman origin, and it's in fact better to have an Ephesian origin for these, uh, these prison epistles. And so when Scripture shows us uh, different praetoriums in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, uh, it's clear. And then, of course, we have secular history where we know there was a praetorium in Ephesus and a praetorium in Rome. Obviously, the biggest one was in Rome. Um, don't uh, just assume verse 13 does not demand a Roman origin, neither at the end of the book of, Philipp- of uh, Philippians when you have um, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All right, That uh, also is an expression that does not demand or prove a Roman origin for this epistle. Caesar had households, all through, every, every imperial palace would have slaves, would have a household, would have... Uh, uh, would be a a possible origin of of that verse as well. All right. As we get to point three then, where we left off on Wednesday, we talk about goads. Paul's progress in the gospel, verse uh, 12. And his well-known imprisonment, verse 13. His progress in the gospel and his well-known imprisonment produced goads to action goads to action. I love goads. I even know a pastor named Goad, <laughs> which I think is great. Mark Goad in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And uh, to me, it's the greatest name of a pastor I can imagine because a goad in scripture is, is oxuno, is a, is a stick, is a sharp pointed stick. And uh, when you want, if you, if you got an ox or a pair of oxen that are pulling your cart, the goad is the sharp pointed stick that the driver would then jab into the, into the, uh, what shall we say, <clears throat> the hindquarters, right? The, the rump roast, if you will, of the, of the oxen. 
okay? And that's a very vivid picture because we all need that. We all need a sharp stick to the, to the hindquarters, all right, so that we get it in gear. The whole point of the fact is no one likes a sharp stick in, <clears throat> in, the, in the backside, okay? It hurts. It's not pleasant. And it, it reminds us that we're supposed to be, you know, we, we got to get a, a get along in the, in the giddy up. And that's what, that's what this does. And this goad, as he talks about here, um, verse 14, most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Abundant courage, abounding courage. When we talk about how your love may abound, that's the terminology we're talking about here with the abounding uh, courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so, so much of the terminology from earlier in the chapter is being repeated now in this paragraph, and I don't think that's accidental. I think it's deliberate. He uses those terms in his prayers, and now he's using those terms as well in describing what's happening in, uh, in his circumstances. And so we talk about these goads. And so a goad to action is, is a stimulus. It's a thing. It's, a, it's an event. For Paul, it's the circumstances of his imprisonment. For um, other believers, it could be anything. It could be watching what's happening. It could be an email from Africa. It could, be, it could be anything that you respond to when having heard it, having read it, having seen it, having, having observed it somehow, God the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of you and says, are you doing something about this? <laughs> what are you doing? What, how does this apply to you? Where's your application? All right. And uh, different different things there. Now, uh, these goads <coughs> among two widely divergent groups of believers, it's interesting because on the one hand we've got um, the, all the right motivation, all the right thinking, the right attitudes, everything uh, in, in, in just a marvelous way. And then on the other hand we've got something horrible. We've got carnality in ministry. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a crowd of believers, born again believers mind you, that are pursuing ministry with the wrong motivation. And uh, you think, wow, <laughs> that was happening way back then? Yes, <laughs> it's been happening way back then. It's older than the church because it happened for Israel and their stewardship. It happens throughout human history. It's called sin, okay? And believers, think about why, why was Cain bringing his vegetables anyway? If he was really an unbeliever and ungodless, why did he give two hoots about a sacrifice? But he, he wanted to demonstrate his godliness, his righteousness, at least as he defined it, in, uh, in his sacrifice. So this is nothing new, and we shouldn't be shocked when we see it in, in our generation, in our day and age, uh, but we see it here and uh, in these two groups. All right, so let's look at verse 14, 15. Uh, let's read all the way through 17. So he says, most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And Paul's not ignorant of that. He's fully aware of that. That's why he says, to be sure. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. So don't be uh, foolish and understand, you know, even, uh, you know, on a, on a Sunday morning, uh, why are folks in church? You know, or is everybody here for the right reason? I'd like to think so. And uh, love believes all things. So uh, even if I don't, love believes all things. And so there we go. Everyone, everyone here this morning, I'm to be sure, is here for the right reasons. But maybe others are not. Okay? And that's uh, the Lord knows. That's the best part. <clears throat> so uh, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And that's no good. I mean, think about it. Envy and strife? Mental attitude sins? Things that Scripture says comes from the wisdom from below? That, that can't be good. How can that be good? It's not good, but it can work together for good. And Paul's going to kind of come to a conclusion there. We'll see that in verse 17. Um, others, or the latter, do it out of love. And of course that's what he prayed for, that the love would abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They're going to, they're going to, they think 
that Paul's going to be all upset at what they're doing because uh, he's out of, out of action. He's out of the picture. He can't come in and stop what they're doing. He is, uh, he's trapped where he is. <clears throat> I like the conclusion of verse 18. What then? Only that in, either, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He doesn't rejoice in the envy. He doesn't rejoice in the, the wrong motivation, the strife, the, uh, the mental attitude sin, or, or the, any of the darkness they're pursuing. That's not, you can't rejoice in that. No one can rejoice in that. But even as bad as that is, still Christ is being proclaimed. Isn't that something? You know, even in the worst churches on the planet. To me, it's, it's amusing. It's, uh, it, it's, it's always curious to me when somebody in a Roman Catholic church actually gets saved in spite of their theology, in spite of their church. Because in spite of everything else that they're doing wrong, they still have a Bible and people can pick up that Bible and people can read that Bible and assuming they read not one of those apocryphal extra books that got added after the Reformation, but if they're, if they're actually reading the God-breathed inspired text of the Word of God, that's, that's powerful, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And someone can pick up that Bible and understand they've got to believe in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. And that's an amazing thing. So um, I think that's kind of comparable to what we're seeing here. Hey, if Christ is being proclaimed, even if it's wrong motivation, um, Christ is being proclaimed. And, and praise God for that. Rejoice in that. Now, for most of the brethren, Paul's chains, remember they were manifestly in Christ. Don't forget that. These chains were manifestly in Christ. That's, that's, that's key. When we, when we exegeted verse 13 uh, and we said that my chains or my imprisonment have uh, been manifest to be uh, in Christ. That's the phrase, in Christ, in verse 13. Not the fact that he's in jail. That's just information. All right? Yes, he's in chains. Get that. But beyond that, the chains are in Christ. That's what's manifest. That's what's clearly seen. That they're not Roman chains holding him there. It's Christ holding him there. All right? Do we get that? Does that make sense? It's the chains in Christ. Not the Roman chains. (laughs) Don't confuse the issue. And it's the well-known chains in Christ that have uh, become the goad that have prompted other believers to take action. The recognition that circumstances don't control us because those aren't Rome's chains. Those are, those are uh, Christ's chains. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See, that becomes all the difference in the world. So for most of the brethren, Paul's chains, ma- the, the manifestly in Christ chains, were persuasively emboldening by Christ. Christ himself is the agent of the persuasion. They were persuasively emboldening by Christ. And that's what verse 14 says here. Most of the brethren, in a a passive voice here of patho, being persuaded by the Lord. Okay, don't use trust. I think trust is, is is an inadequate translation there of patho. And I'm glad that we've had several patho studies. And very recently we've had several patho studies. We had it in verse 6 where Paul said, I am confident of this very thing. I am persuaded of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we took the time in that verse, you remember, to go through patho and to discuss what persuasion is all about. Why does God persuade? Why does God work in such a way that our thinking is persuaded, that we are adjusted? In, and why doesn't He just force us to do what He wants us to do? <laughs> okay? It doesn't work that way. He persuades. He arranges the circumstances whereby our thinking is adjusted. And if we need an attitude adjustment, He does that too. He's very good at that also. If in anything you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you as well. So they were being persuaded. And we have, this, uh, we have this being described here for most of the brethren. And right there, <laughs> I think tells you something, um, not all the brethren. There were some that even though they saw the chains, the chains were manifestly in Christ, even though they observed what everybody else was observing, they were not yet persuaded. And you have to ask, well, what does it take? <laughs> what kind of 
earth-shattering event does it take to, to, to get them, you know, are they immune to the, to the jabs in the, in, the, in the hindquarters? I mean, what does it take to, to get active in your faith, to be about your father's business? Well, for some, not even this. However, for most, this was their goad to action. And so uh, they were being persuasively emboldened. And that's the, uh, the attitude on courage. And we'll talk about, um, there are, the, the scriptures have different terms for courage. And some um, speak of, of an openness and a, and a transparency. Some speak of, 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 of a, a fearlessness in, in the face of danger. And there's a little bit of that here, I think, because you have the adverb without fear. And so that, I think, you can't separate that from the issue. To speak the word of God without fear requires a, um, a courage that overcomes, you know, embarrassment or, or danger. And, in, in, and that's ultimately far more serious than we encounter, right? We're so soft and easy here in America that, you know, we're not, no one's going to throw us in jail for mentioning the name of Jesus on the street, all right? Um, we don't live in a place whereby our, our property will be confiscated or we're going to be physically beaten. Okay, not yet. Uh, the most we'll get now is just mocked and ridiculed and, and one of these uh, evolutionary you know, know-it-alls will just kind of sneer and, and, uh, and insult, you know, insult you in some way. Um, but be that as it may. Uh, the idea that without fear we're going to continue to speak the truth when that truth may put us in the same cell next to Paul. Okay? Why was Paul in jail? Do we know? Does this text tell us? We have some clues in Acts 19. We've got some clues during the, that, that uh, second missionary journey, uh, between the second and the third missionary journey as he relocated to Ephesus. We've got some clues as to who some of the hostile people were, the silversmiths and the, some of the other uh, uh, idol makers and some of the other crowds, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, there were some uh, uh, other uh, factions there that had jealousy. Here, I think the only clue we have is there's some believers, those that can't wait to get Paul out of the way so they can build their followings. Okay, and uh, if he's reasoning in the school of Tyrannus, and then he gets driven out of there, and you, there are other circumstances we can kind of read between the lines and try to get a glimmer. But what was the charge? Why was he finally put in jail? Well, this text doesn't actually tell us, and neither does Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon. But whatever that case may be, we may have the, the, the biggest clues may come up in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and some of the other passages we looked at in the, uh, in the introduction. But to speak the word of Christ without fear, to speak the word of God without fear, recognizing that this is a, a circumstance where there are real, tangible dangers for naming the name of Christ, to do so publicly can uh, have uh, life-threatening circumstances, okay? And yet, most of the brethren were persuaded by Christ to step up instead of stepping back, to get more bold instead of hiding in the shadows or getting more reluctant, see? Human wisdom would read a verse like this and say, ooh, seeing Paul's imprisonment, most of the brethren got careful, most of the brethren started to walk more circumspectly. They started to ease off a bit. They, they went into hiding. They stopped publicly portraying. But no, it was just the opposite. And Christ is the one who did that persuasion. And so looking at the Greek and looking at the terms here, the, the verb is patho, to persuade, and Christ is the one who's doing it. We are the ones that are being persuaded. Allowing Christ to persuade allows Christ to embolden. And I think that's an extraordinary principle. It applies in this passage. I think we can prove it from other passages as well. That Jesus is the agent. He's the subject of the verb. Okay? Allowing Christ to persuade. That's patho. P-E-I-T-H-O. The Strong's Concordance number is 3892. I'm not going to take you through a bunch of those verses again. We did that uh, in verse 6. Okay? That idea of persuasion. Allowing Christ to persuade. See, can he, can he persuade if you don't want to be persuaded? Does he choose to do so? He does not choose to do so. See, he persuades 
But the active voice of persuasion requires our volition to experience the passive voice of persuasion. He can actively persuade and we can resist being persuaded. Everybody knows that, right? (laughs) You know, just ask any husband and wife, okay? And uh, they'll tell you. And it goes both directions as one is trying to persuade the other and the other is not persuaded. All right, until eventually. Well, okay. And whatever else that takes as part of marriage, as part of loving one another and serving one another and the blessings there. But the, uh, the active voice of persuasion is what Christ does. The passive voice of persuasion is what we do. And we must be persuaded. And we're persuaded by our Savior. We're persuaded by His Word. We're persuaded by His truth. We're persuaded especially if it's in something that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. Okay? When, when you know, we're told to run with endurance the race set before you and we're looking at that saying, uh, you know, I wouldn't have picked that race. Can I pick out a race for myself? This route looks better, but that's not the route he takes us, right? So uh, we have it. Now, allowing that to happen then allows Christ to embolden. And so the other verb here in this text is, is tolmao, T-O-L-M-A-O, tolmao. Strong's number on that tolmao is 5111. And this embolden is, uh, is rendered courage, um, being persuaded by the Lord because of or through my imprisonment, through my chains, have far more, um, and here's the tolmao verb, have been far more emboldened. Again, passive voice, it's happening to them. Christ is the one that's doing it. Have been far more emboldened to speak, to laleo the logos, to speak the word of God without fear. Okay? to speak the word of God without fear. And so there's that emboldening. And how do you allow that emboldening to happen? Well, you allow Christ to persuade you. And then, so they go hand in hand. The persuasion fo- is followed with the emboldening. If you don't allow Christ to persuade you, then there's no emboldening. See how that works? And it all comes down to your obedience and your humility. The willingness to say, here I am, send me. Say, all right, Lord, you know better than I do. Uh, I wouldn't go that way, Okay. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, no thanks, I, I, why am I there? Aren't there nicer valleys somewhere? Can I walk through the valley of the, you know, the easy life? <laughs> walk through the valley of cheeseburgers and, and baseball? I mean, give me something fun. Give me something enjoyable. All right. Well, no, this is the valley he's taking you through. And so are you persuaded that he is able, right? Are you persuaded that, uh, that he knows what he's doing? Are you persuaded that this is something he has for you to do? This is your door of opportunity. If so, then uh, you can accept his emboldening. You can accept him to um, work in you in, a, in an audacity, in a boldness that you wouldn't have otherwise that uh, you're going to go places you wouldn't go in your flesh. You're going to say things you wouldn't say in your own personality. You're going to do things you wouldn't do under normal circumstances. In fact, you can't believe as you're doing it, I can't believe I'm doing this. And after it's done, you say, I can't believe I did that. And then you go back to the Father in prayer and say, thank you, Father. (laughs) Getting me out of my comfort zone. Getting me out of my normal. And, uh, And doing these things. And that's, uh, that's the blessing there. This daring. When you study talmao, when you study as cognate nouns and adjectives, <coughs> this daring is nearly an audacity. And I, I'm going to use those terms fairly interchangeably in these verses we look at and in these, in, in, uh, in these passages that employ this language. Because again, it's not battlefield courage necessarily. It's, uh, it's more of a of a daring, and it's almost in the sense of, you know, if, if you're totally offended, and then you, you, you stare at that person, and you say, how dare you, right? That's the kind of daring that we're talking about. That's what this courage is about. Uh, it's not, there's other kinds of courage, and there's other Greek words that speak to that, uh, but this is a, this is a, a daring that speaks of, of, of an audacity. You're daring to do something that's, that's so outrageous, you're daring to do something that's beyond decency, <laughs> okay? Normalcy. It's, uh, 
It's interesting. And it's an audacity, it's nearly an audacity, and depending on context, crosses the line into something carnal. Okay? Depending on context, crosses the line into something carnal. Now, not in this case, not in this context. Okay? These believers that are being emboldened by Christ, Christ would never embolden a believer to do something carnal. So don't get me wrong on that. But there, this, this audacity approaches that. And if it wasn't Christ pushing you in this way, um, it may be that there are some actions that would, be, that would not be right. Okay? You know, for example, the, uh, the uh, widow and her prayer, the unrighteous judge and the important prayer, right? Just nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. Would that be normal? Would that be right under other circumstances? Would you do that under other circumstances? If there was my kid nagging me, you know how quickly they would be grounded or spanked or, you know, or the unrighteous judge. But Jesus uses that as a positive example of prayer. And he, that was his illustration for that nagging widow day after day after day. And finally she just wears him down. He says, all right, enough already. And he answers her, her petition just so that she goes away. Okay? Now that, to me, that's striking because that's, that's what I'm talking about. That under other circumstances, that kind of audacity would, would not be appropriate. It would not be right. It would be, it would, you know, cross into carnality. If there was one of my children doing that or one of my deacons doing that or what, you know, do you put up with that? What do you do? But Christ says that's the pattern for prayer. And likewise, I think with this boldness, with this daring, how dare you? And we'll see, there are certain passages where when you do dare to do something, it's totally carnal. The one that jumps out at me right away on this list is that 1 Corinthians uh, text. You're, 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 you're going to court, you're suing your brothers and sisters in Christ? How dare you? You're taking a, a church matter to an earthly judge? How dare you? Okay? And that, that, so that shows you uh, a... Uh, where it does cross the line into carnality. And obviously it's not Christ who's emboldening that. It's Satan that's emboldening that who uh, loves to, to tear the church apart and do those things. All right. And so when it comes to tomao, and like I say, there are cognate verbs or adjectives and nouns. Um, the passages I think we're very familiar with would include the ones that you see on the screen there. Uh, Matthew, which is parallel to Mark. Um, Matthew twenty two forty six, and we and we can understand this. There's this is this is I think universal to to human experience, and in, in any culture, through the through any uh, time period you want to talk about, there is uh, a tendency here uh, of humans to dare certain things and not dare certain things. And uh, Matthew twenty two forty six uh, is is an illustration of that paralleled in Mark 12. Um, this is in one of the, the back and forth between the Pharisees and Christ. And they keep trying to find evidence against him that they can use at trial. They keep trying to find grounds for his execution. And, uh, and so then he comes back with, with Scripture and, and leaves him without an answer, right? And so... Um, in verse 42, he asked, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And so he said to them, well, then how does David and the spirit call him Lord? And he throws it right back at him. He says, you guys know your Bible. Answer me this. And then he quotes Psalm 110 and he quotes a Psalm that we're studying in Hebrews. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So if the Messiah is a descendant of David, the seed of David, uh, you know, then how does David call him Lord? If the Lord said to my Lord. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can he be Lord and son at the same time? And we know the answer, right? We know about the preexistent God the Son and, and his hypostatic union and his coming in the flesh. And we know all that. They should have a frame of reference, even from the Old Testament, to understand that the Christ is Yahweh. That the king is Yahweh. That when they're looking for the, king, uh, the kingdom of heaven, they're looking for the kingdom of David, they're looking for these things, the messianic kingdom, they should have a frame of reference to put that together. 
And it's interesting. So he asked them this question in verse 45 and then in verse 46, uh, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone talmao, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) That was kind of game over at that point as far as they were concerned. And it's interesting to me. So here's a daring. And why were they daring before? And what causes them to not dare such things? I think that's a worthwhile study. I think when we talk about what we dare and what we don't dare, well, why is that? What is it I would never dare to do? Ooh, I would never dare to um, speak publicly in front of a congregation. Well, why not? What if he's giving you a gift of pastor teacher? That's kind of, you better start daring, (laughs) okay? You know, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know the gift, the ministry, the effects, what it is that God may put you, and he may very well take you to the last place on earth you want to be. Because whatever it is, you've got your Nineveh, just as Jonah did, and you may not want to be there. But Christ is persuading and emboldening, and he's leading you, he's taking you where you need to be, and we can learn to uh, start appreciating that. All right, now Mark 12 is a parallel to Matthew 22, and so I put those parallel lines in there to remind me that I don't need to turn and read that one. Let's uh, look at Luke 20, and I'm starting to think I should have put a parallel line there also, so I'm thinking that we don't need to read Luke 20 also. Luke 20 and verse 40. Yes, my apologies. Well, it's a different story, though. It's um, uh, this is the one where uh, this black widow lady had, you know, seven dead husbands, and no one at all got suspicious at why her husbands kept dropping dead. But they uh, they presented this story to the Lord to try to disprove the resurrection and ask, uh, well, you know, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because you know she had seven husbands and. You know, that's going to be a, a busy woman in heaven if she's got to be married to all seven husbands, or how does that work? And um, Jesus just immediately stops all that foolishness and uh, <clears throat> says, uh, the sons of this age marry and are given a marriage, but the uh, resurrection from the dead, those of the resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And uh, like the angels in the resurrection, we are no longer procreative and that becomes an important study as well because uh, that's uh, part of what we examine in the millennium and in the fullness of time for the thousand generations of the new heavens and new earth that requires a procreative population. And uh, so how does that work when you have resurrected non-procreators and procreators? How does that function uh, in the millennium and beyond in the uh, fullness of time? So that's a passage that we take a look at. Anyway, and then with respect to the dead being raised and the significance of that, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. It's a, it's a important, this is why we exegete, this is why we pay attention to verb tenses. This is an is, right? Does it make a difference what is means? Yes, is is is, okay? And is, not was, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back when they were alive. No, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are still alive. They are born again. They are. They have eternal life and uh, principles there. So on the basis of that aspect, some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And this is when the scribes bail out on him, okay? Thinking Matthew, we get the Pharisees bailing, and now we get the scribes bailing, and different groups lost their boldness, lost their courage. And from, from different moments, they would no longer dare, presume, have, they would no longer have any kind of audacity to challenge the, uh, the God of truth. <laughs> you know, how do you want to debate against the way, the truth, and the life? You know, if, uh, if your view is different than his, then you're wrong and you need to learn why <laughs> and fix what you think is. Uh, is your understanding. So that's Luke 20 and verse 40. Uh, Back to Mark, Mark 15, 43. We'll see some more of this daring or not daring as the case may be. Mark 15, 43. Think about the courage this took. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day, that is the day 
before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. Okay? Not a backbencher, not a, not a nobody, but a prominent member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. See, he had a framework called the Old Testament. He understood the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the throne of David, and all these promises and how they synthesized in the Hebrew canon. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now you talk about putting your head on a plate, (laughs) you know, especially if Pilate doesn't know who you are, if Pilate doesn't know that you're sympathetic to this uh, Galilean, if Pilate doesn't, you know, and now what are you doing? You're volunteering to say, uh, I'm with him. That guy you just executed, I'm with him. (coughs) So he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. (coughs) Excuse me. And interestingly enough, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And that's kind of quick. Crucifixion could normally take days. You know, by the time he would die of exposure and asphyxiation and and all the rest, the the idea that he died in six hours, that's unusual. How did that happen? Well, he was done. Tetelestai was finished. There's no reason to hang around. (laughs) Okay, sorry. He he, uh, gave up his spirit. Okay? He said, it is finished. Said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he then uh, entered into the human experience of physical death. Not necessary for our redemption, but necessary for his identification. The continuing, ongoing identification. Plus, he had work to do in Sheol, and uh, he couldn't do that until his spirit descended. <coughs> so, um, anyway, so Joseph now takes the body. How could he be dead already? And so Pilate summoned the centurion and questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And so then the burial procedure and the tomb and and all these things. And so think about the courage that takes and the boldness that that requires. Where do you think Joseph got that boldness? See, I mean, I know it says he emboldened himself, but did did he do that or did he not do that based upon teaching? Was it not the word of God that emboldened him? I believe it was. Uh, John twenty one twelve. All of these, I think, are painting a picture. If you want to uh, build up your own courage, you better have a uh, you better have a doctrinal framework for the Word of God. John chapter twenty one and verse twelve. <coughs> this is uh, the uh, breakfast that he has with them after his resurrection. <coughs> He appears to them on the sea. And it's interesting to me, um, the chapter begins, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it's it's interesting to me, this is our verb phanerao, this is to manifest. And when he manifests, we're accountable. And of all the post-resurrection appearances that he conducted, they were very specific for 40 days. He manifested himself to different people at different times for different purposes. And in many of those cases, he was summoning apostles to their apostolic office. And so in this way, he manifested himself to his apostles. And it's curious to me how Peter and these guys, uh, in verse 3, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Well, why not? <laughs> you know, and you got to wonder, if, uh, if you're faced with discouragement in ministry, what do you do? Do you just go back to what's comfortable? You go, well, I was a fisherman before I was a follower of Christ, and I guess we're done here, so what am I going to do? Okay, that's frightening. I'm not going to go back to the jail ever again. You know, I worked there long enough. Or, you know, if I quit being a pastor, what would I do? Would I, man, I think about all my former lines of work. I can't imagine any of them uh, being a, a waiter. Hmm. Well, pluckers maybe, but no, I wouldn't even... <laughs> would I be a, a waiter? Would I be an a, a MP in the army? Would I be... Uh, I'm too old for that. Would I be... Uh, you have an idea for me? I could take over Grace Notes. Okay. <laughs> I'll pray for that. Here's Peter going back to the fishing business. I'm going fishing. And they said, okay, we'll come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing professionals men that have been doing it for years all their life right 
probably learned it from Zebedee and learned it from the older man, and, 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 and it's useless to him now. You think about it. Try going back to your secular work when you know you should be doing something else. And, um, and then when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach and the disciples didn't know that it was him. And, and that, that boggles me. Mary Magdalene in the garden and others, the, the man on the road to Emmaus, some, something about the resurrection allows you to disguise your appearance. I don't understand it, but it's kind of curious to me. And it, because it happens again and again and again and again that uh, mortal humanity, uh, unless, unless the immortal chooses to be revealed, uh, mortal humanity can't recognize the person, even if they've known him for years and years. And it's curious to me. And so uh, <laughs> they don't recognize him. And he says, children, you, you don't have any fish, do you? <laughs> you know, how insulting to these guys. They've been fishing all night and they got nothing. So he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. And uh, so they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's the Lord. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? You talk about getting caught in a bad spot and uh, here they're straining, trying to pull this net in and, and then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it just clicks with him. He says, wait a minute, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. What are we doing? What are we doing? So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment because he'd been stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The rest of them uh, brought the boat in. Peter wasn't willing to wait. He had to swim and get there faster. <coughs> anyway, this is the context for this. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous chapter and it's an interesting thing. And uh, they got out on the land, saw a charcoal fire already laid, fish placed on it and bread. Notice it wasn't any of the fish that were in the net. He didn't need those. So they finally, they're bringing the net in, they're bringing the boat in, they finally get there and he's got the fire going, he's got fish already cooking. And um, so he says, hey, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 don't ask me, can't explain it. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And so Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And that's our term, they uh, ventured, uh, is tomao. None of the disciples ventured to question him. And I ponder this, and I'm curious, what is it that keeps me from talking to my, my Savior? What is it that keeps me from asking, is it simply because I already know the answer? Is that a reason to not ask when he tells us to ask? Maybe I know the answer. He already, already knows the answer. Does it keep me from asking? Is there something that would embarrass me with my Savior? Why do I not dare? Why do I not dare speak to him about anything, pray to him about anything, ask him about anything? Okay, and that's curious to me. So Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. There he is, loaves and fishes again. You would think if they go through this episode enough times, they're going to figure it out. <laughs> or not. Okay. This is now the third time that Jesus manifests to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So it was the upper room, it was uh, the mount uh, where they got the Great Commission in Galilee, and then here, the, uh, the third time that he appeared to the twelve. All right, Acts 5.13. See some more daring, some more audacity. Acts 5.13. And, um, of course, the chapter starts with Ananias and Sapphira, and we're familiar with that story, and uh, the conclusion of which, after uh, Sapphira gets buried... Uh, Verse 11 says, Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. And it's curious to me, how many of these passages that talk about tomao, talk about daring or courage, have phobos indicators nearby? And uh, either, and it seems to me that when your fear is misplaced, when you're fearing man and you're not fearing God, that's a problem. 
And that's going to keep you from having the tomao. But if you fear God and you don't fear man, if you have an appropriate phobos application, then you will allow God to embolden you. You will allow God to tomao you because your phobos is in the right place, right? You have the right phobia. You're not, you're, you have the fear of the Lord, you don't have the fear of man. But so long as you don't fear God, if you have a fear of man, then I don't, I don't see any way, and I don't see any scripture that will allow God to tomao us, to embolden us for anything because we don't fear Him. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that leads to everything that follows. And so I think we see that here. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And that's a positive fear. I think a fear of the Lord. Yet... Is it universally applied? I don't know. Verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. And so you might imagine what this is like here in the early days of the church as this was taking place. And uh, these signs and wonders are the signs of a true apostle and all this was happening. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. (coughs) However, the people held them in high esteem. And so they're, they're really in, a, in an awkward spot here. They, they, they appreciate what they're doing. They don't want to be named with them. They're keeping themselves at a distance, but they keep showing up to hear what the teaching's about. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them. Isn't that something? Also the people from the cities of the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. And so it's curious to me, those that name the name of Christ and those that don't, in, in, in this early stage of the church, you've got some Old Testament believers still that, ha- <coughs> that have not crossed into the, the New Testament reality. They've not yet accepted Jesus as the Christ. So they're Old Testament believers still looking for a coming Christ. Then you've got the church, those that know about the Christ and His resurrection have placed their faith in Him. And then you've got the people from the city, just general population off the streets. Are they saved or not saved or what are they? Who knows? But word gets around that, hey, you want to be laying here, <coughs> you want to be laying here when these people are walking by. You want their shadow to fall on you. See, probably do something for my congestion. If I just lay there and let Peter's shadow cross over me. Anyway, but there's a daring to associate. None of the rest dared to associate with them. And that that's going to be something for our application. It's going to be something for our conviction. Maybe not today, but maybe down the road. If, uh, if there carries a price to be paid for naming the name of Austin Bible Church, if, uh, if our records were seized, if our members were, were uh, arrested or questioned or looked into, if uh, something was to happen, if, if we faced criminal or legal some kind of uh, liability, um, do you name the name of Austin Bible Church? Or you say, oh, nope, not me. Don't want my name on that membership role. Okay, well, choose who you identify with for the right reasons, okay? Or who you don't identify with, again, for the right reasons. And that's uh, an application for each one of us. All right. I have no choice. I'm kind of the obvious one. <laughs> All right, my name's on the website. And, uh, and uh, there's plenty of banking records that, that show that, uh, that you guys have been paying me for 23 years and longer. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to jail, there's no question, when, uh, when that day comes, okay? It'd be nice if someone went with me. <laughs> so that's Acts chapter 5. How about Acts chapter 7? You know, it's curious. Same thing happened. Uh, Peter's trying to eavesdrop on the trial of Jesus, and they say, hey, you're one of them, aren't you? And he goes, oh, no, no, not me. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Three times Peter denied Jesus when he had an opportunity to stand up and say, yeah. In fact, not only am I with him, I'm, I'm apostle number one. Okay? 
I'm always listed first in that group of 12. I told him last night I was ready to die with him, so here I am. (laughs) That wasn't Peter, though. Peter was denying him three times. It's curious to me. All right, Acts chapter 7. And here's Stephen giving his walk through the Bible message. (coughs) And uh, this is when Moses appears before the Lord and the people. um, And even Moses would not venture to look. So uh, here's the uh, burning bush. So after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not, Talmao, would not venture to look. And then he had to overcome that. Because he was ordered, take off your shoes and get over here. And he has to be called in this way. And all throughout, we're going to see this shortly. In fact, subpoint three is Moses. So we'll get to there shortly. Uh, Moses is the great example of this, of someone that has to be emboldened by God because three times he's called and three times he says, you know, not me, use my brother, use somebody, use you know, anybody but me. And God says, no, you're my, you're my tool. And he uses him. So we'll be discussing this with uh, the Moses illustration. So that's Acts 7, 32. How about Romans 5, 7? <clears throat> I think we're familiar with this text, but this may give us a sense now for the aspect of daring or, auda- or audacity. Um, verse 6 says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who does that? When does the just die for the unjust? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. Maybe, all right, if it's a loved one, if it's somebody that is good, if, it's, if there's a reason, <coughs> humanity can uh, build up some courage and lay down your life. You know, you can throw yourself on a grenade so your buddy lives, or, uh, um, you know, you take a bullet for your wife or something. If, if you might, if you have enough of a reason, you can tomao to die. But Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. He left the ivory palaces. He came and he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. So think about that. So God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans fifteen eighteen. Got two minutes and we'll try to wrap this up here. Romans 15, 18. <clears throat> he says in verse 17, um, therefore in Christ Jesus I have found a reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume, here's our bo- or, uh, uh, the audacity, I will not dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. It's like that song the cathedrals used to sing, how dare I boast of anything I've ever seen or done. It's everything that Christ has done. And so if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in what Christ has done. And I I don't dare boast in anything that I've done. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And I guess our last one, 1 Corinthians 6, we'll pick up here on Wednesday. Going to, uh, there is no 621. It's 61. How does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? It's like, how dare you? So that's verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1. There is no 21 in chapter 6. How dare you? How dare you use a world's method Use a world, worldly court. Use an unbelieving judge to solve this issue here between brothers. Is there not one wise man among yourself? But no. Brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Whoever wins the lawsuit, you're both losers. Why are you doing that? Okay? Why are you doing that? How dare you do that? So that's the uh, that's the uh, 
the terminology there. All right. Well, we'll come back Wednesday. We'll learn how to be audacious on Wednesday and learn how to have such daring that it would be audacious and, and just celebrate that Christ is pushing us in that regard, that Christ is motivating our daring and our audacity. But uh, of course, it's all in Him. It's all by His leading. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for this morning. Thank You for a voice. I uh, pray that uh, You give me one more hour to get through this morning. We thank You for Your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen.